It's great to see you here. Thank you, uh, thank you for coming to this breakout session. We've got some Baptists in the back, I see. Uh, all the righteous people are down front. But um, uh, really, the purpose for this, uh, this breakout is just to do a Q&A, uh, primarily from this morning. I thought I might start, though, with um, just a little bit more about the full subject of my, of my book um, and tell you kind of how that came to be, and then we can, you can ask questions about that if you want as we go. But, um, you know, I explained this morning about how over from 2005 on I was working heavily with a ministry called Finishing the Task, FTT. I don't know if any of you are connected to that ministry or not, but... Um, that was founded by my mentor, Paul Eshelman. Paul took me on my first international trip in 1994 to Nigeria. Uh, on that trip, I met another one of the speakers at the conference, Daniel Atia. I don't know if I, I don't know if his session is right now or, or was earlier, but uh, if you haven't missed it, go see him. He's he's terrific. Uh, but that trip also got me connected to Paul, and so when he left the Jesus film and started doing uh, FTT, he invited me to get involved, and you know I caught the vision of that, and that has led to this finishing fund ministry that I now get to to lead, which is really fun. Be happy to answer questions about that if you're interested. But um, you know, it was through FTT that I discovered what what I call the promise of Matthew 24:14, that um, you know we have a job to do, and Jesus has promised to come back when it is when it's finished. There's other people who view that verse a little differently, but um, that's the way I view it. And, you know, I get to speak today, so I'll tell you what I think about it. But, um, and so that was very encouraging and very exciting to me. It's still very highly motivating to me that, you know, we might live in the generation that not only sees the completion of the Great Commission, but sees the return of Jesus. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, but I sort of started a personal exercise to see if there were any other clues in the scriptures that might similarly confirm that we're living in the time of Jesus' return. And that was really not for purposes of researching a book or um, you know, putting anything uh, in, the, in the public, really just for my own education. Um, and I began over time to find you know, a clue here and a clue there. Some of these are things that people generally are aware of, like, um, you know, the, the incredible prophetic importance of the regathering of the nation of Israel, how that fulfills amazing prophecy all through Scripture, um, and I think is a really key sign of our living in the, in the very last, last days. In fact, you know, I would go so far as to say that um, I, I think maybe the, the most powerful biblical apologetic for the existence of a sovereign God is Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30. Uh, these are prophecies that are given before the Israelites even enter the Promised Land. Uh, so, you know, call that, people disagree about that, but, you know, round numbers, let's say 1500 BC, 3500 years ago. Um, and uh, in chapter 28, God promises that if the people don't obey him, they will be scattered among the nations. And they will live for a very long time in very hard conditions, which is, of course, exactly what happened in history. And then in Deuteronomy 30, he promises that in the last days, he will regather them to their ancestral homeland and restore them to the land of their 
forefathers and give them great prosperity. And, and that's not the only place he promises that. But you, you talk about, you know, Babe Ruth pointing out his home run, you know, and saying, I'm going to hit it out right there. Um, you know, that's God 3,500 years before modern Israel gets formed, promising that he will do that very thing. And I, I've yet to meet anybody who can explain how that happens other than that there's a God who has his hand on history and sovereign over the affairs of min- mankind. And, um, and anyway, so I, I think that's a powerful project. There were others that I began to discover over time. For instance, um, you know, you've probably read this 50 times and maybe, ne- maybe never thought anything of it, but in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, there's this enigmatic little verse that talking about in the times of the end that knowledge will increase and people will move to and fro. Uh, that whole chapter is about the time of the end. It, you know, it's where the probably the major Old Testament um, uh, teaching about the resurrection is in Daniel chapter 12. I think maybe verse one or maybe verse two. Um, but that verse four is kind of interesting. You know, just kind of a throwaway. At the end, time of the end, there'll be increased travel and increased knowledge. And you know, in my book, I make the case if you were to just kind of randomly go out and pick two things that would be characteristic of our time those would be the two things that you would pick. Um, not only has knowledge in, you know, cr- increased, at, it, it's increasing at a super exponential right now. People debate how quickly, but some people think that knowledge is doubling every few days. Some people think even faster than that. Um, so not only do we live in an age of incredible you know, body of knowledge, um, but you know, we all have uh, instantaneous access to virtually all of it right at our fingertips, you know. Uh, we don't use it for that. <laughs> we use it for a lot of dumb things. But, you know, it's, it, sometimes I'll joke with my kids, there's no reason not to know anything you want to know. You can just look it up. You know, you can find it in typically in, in just a few seconds. And so, you know, that's true. And then many of you know, because you travel around the world, how incredibly easy and fast tra- and safe travel is in our generation compared to even you know, a couple of generations ago. In the book, I, you know, I, it's always good to try to go back and put yourself in previous times. I, you know, until about 1800, say, you know, the fastest that anybody had ever traveled is, the, is a galloping horse. You know, how fast is that? 20 or 30 miles an hour? And not for very long, you know. Um, and, you know, that, for that reason, most people who were born before that time in the history of the world lived pretty close to where they were born, and people didn't move around very much. It was just too difficult to, to do that. And then, of course, you know, in the, ni- in the 19th century, you have trains, and you have then airplanes in the 20th century. You know, the DC-3, people are moving at 200 miles an hour. You know, oh, my goodness, right? Um, like, you know, what did the, uh, what did the um, uh, you know, what did that ch- how did that change the, the world? And then, uh, you know, we take for granted that we can fly anywhere in the world at five or six hundred miles an hour. I mean, it's preposterous, you know, compared to the whole history of mankind. And that's something that's only been true for maybe the last 60 years or so, 50 or 60 years. You know, um, I like to compare to the um, missionaries who would go from Europe to Burma or China or India in the day. And you can read their biographies and, you know, five months on a ship to get where they were going. Um, we could probably still, it's not right now, run out to the airport, catch a flight to Newark, get on the 9 p.m. departure to Delhi, and be there about 9 p.m. Uh, Delhi time tomorrow night. 
uh, people, you know, can't even imagine that. And so, again, a- another little clue that, you know, if this is what the end time, what the last days are going to be, at the very last days, there's another, uh, there's another hint about that. And so what I do in my book is just kind of explain, I, I, if, you read the, if you were to read it, you'd hear a lot of what you heard this morning about the completion of the Great Commission, because that's kind of the big idea. But then there's these, there are these corroborating clues that I think the sum total suggests that, you know, we are within a very short time of the return of Jesus. Um, and I think we have, well, it's mysterious. Does God know when Jesus is coming back? Sure he does. Has he had that in hand all along? Sure he has. Um, but he nevertheless has given us a role to play in that too by completing this great commission task that he's given us. And so uh, when it's all said and done, it will be under his sovereignty and yet still we'll have a role to play in it. Those are those beautiful biblical mysteries. Um, you know, Jesus says in John, no one can come to me unless my father draws him. And then within a few sentences, he says, believe everybody, right? So it's always this beautiful mystery of God's sovereignty and our agency uh, working together. So anyway, that, that's kind of the, the book. And then, you know, um, some of what I talked about this morning as well, the importance of us being ready to meet our Savior. Uh, I think that's a really important idea. And then, you know, the last chapter of my book is just a look at what the Bible promises is in store for God's people. Many of you are pretty young. A few of us are not. This promise of a new body has gotten a lot more attractive to me over the last 10 years or so. And I have a feeling that may continue to be the case, right? Um, The scriptures promise us these new bodies that, you know, are going to be somehow, you know, from these bodies we have now, I think will be recognizable. I I suspect some of the differences that we have will still be there. I'd be very surprised if our ethnic and, you know, racial differences are not preserved in, in in all of that. So, I mean, I think that will be true. Uh, and yet, it promises, you know, no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease, no more death. Uh, the best part is it promises no more sin nature, no more flesh. So this, you know, this Romans 6, Romans 7 struggle that we all know so well, right? I don't do what I want to do. What I don't want to do, I do. Um, that will be gone forever. And I am so ready for that. I don't know about you, but are you ready? I mean, brother, yeah, I mean, that's the best thing. And, you know, and that's just one of the things he's promised us. You know, we'll see him face to face. We'll never have tears again. You know, there'll be tears at the beginning. I suspect we'll regret opportunities that we missed that we could have taken advantage of. We'll see the rewards we could have had. We'll be sad about people we love who aren't with us. And there's probably other things that we'll be crying about. But then the scriptures promise that he will wipe away our tears and comfort us from that. And somehow in the act of doing that, there will never, ever be crying again. No more, no more sadness. So I'm excited about that. I mean, the promises he's given us are amazing. And, you know, you people speculate about what else. And like I said this morning, whatever you imagine it will be, it's going to be even better than that because it says we can't even imagine how good it's going to going to be. So if you think you're going to fly, you probably will, but somehow it'll be even better than that, right? So so anyway, I, I just wanted to do that as a kind of a quick summary of kind of the, the whole topic of the book. What I'd really like to do now, though, is just do Q&A either about this morning's talk or uh, you know, about anything you're interested in. Um, be happy to answer questions about Southeast if you'd have those. I've been in leadership here a while. I probably 
you know, can make a comment about that if you'd be interested, but um, really wanted to just turn this into a Q&A session. So it'll be very short uh, unless uh, you guys ask some questions. So did you have one? Yes. Yes. It is. Yeah. Unreached, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, um, if I can summarize that a little bit, you know, kind of like, where do we get the data that I quoted this morning about where we stand and, you know, how much confidence do I have in that kind of? So um, there are. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask. I was going to talk about that. So there, there's two primary data sources of, of this information. One is the Joshua Project that you mentioned. Really great guys. They do a great job. Um, the other is the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist denomination. Uh, you can find their data at peoplegroups.org. Okay? Uh, and because I got my start in all of this through finishing the task, FTT, and because FTT had long since adopted the IMB data set, I used the IMB data set. That's not to denigrate the Joshua Project at all. There are differences between them. The main source of difference is a difference of opinion about how to think about South Asia, about India. Um, you know, most places in the world, you have, a, you know, kind of a, you know, a one-dimensional problem of figuring out people groups. In India, it's like a three-dimensional problem, right? Because you've got not only language and ethnicity, but you've also got caste that's cut across that as well. And so, JP breaks it down more granularly in India than than people groups does. So that that's the main the main difference. Um, FTT uh, manipulates the IMB data to make a few changes to it. So for instance, um, if you were to look at the IMB data, you would see that um, the Han Chinese are on the IMB uh, data listed there 40 or 50 times. It may even be more. Every diaspora population of the Han Chinese is listed as a people group. Um, and while there's, I mean, I wouldn't argue with anybody who felt called to go minister to the Han Chinese in, you know, Rome, um, you know, that'd be great. That, that's a great thing to do for the kingdom of God. I don't think that qualifies as a, an unengaged people group in the same way that the, you know, the primary population of the Han in, in China would be. The Jews are similar to that. The Bedouins are similar. Uh, and so one change that uh, FTT makes is to shorten the list by eliminating what we, what we call diaspora populations. Uh, another thing that the Southern Baptists do, because they're Southern Baptists, is that they uh, consider unengaged a people group that is a, a, a non-evangelical Christian heritage. So Coptics and Orthodox and others. And you know, I know you can get into a lot of fights about that question and, you know, uh, all kinds of disagreements, and I even might have some opinions about that. But I don't, the way I think about it is it's not arguable that somebody who has never heard the name of Jesus is in a different place than someone who grew up Roman Catholic or Orthodox. You know, they've heard the name of Jesus. They've seen, they've read the Bible. It may have been taught to them in a way we, some of us wouldn't agree with, but, you know, it's a way different place for them to be. So... FTT kind of compresses down the IMB data a little bit, but then they focus FTT exclusively on tracking what's going on with these unengaged people groups. And they've been doing that since 2005. 
Uh, they published the first list, I think, was the groups with population 100,000 and above. So, you know, uh, that left off a whole bunch of little ones. And then as those groups, the larger groups, began to become engaged, uh, they would lower down and down. The current list, if you looked at their, at the FTT website, would be people groups with population 500 and above. At, finishing, at the finishing fund, we focus on groups with population 100 and above. So we've gone down another level down. Um, I'm not sure if that's right or not. I have to tell you, I sometimes wonder about that. The problem is once you get down really small, it's just really, really hard. I mean, you're really talking about families then more than you're talking about, you know, people groups. It, it just gets awfully hard to separate it out granularly. But anyway, that's what we've decided to do is 100. And so... Uh, we've been working for the last five years through the finishing fund to support ministries who will go and engage one of those groups. Engaging means sending workers who will go to that place, evangelize, plant churches, and make disciples. Three-year projects we, we fund. And we've personally, you know, through the, the fund, we've been part of seeing about 650 groups engaged with the gospel. Uh, so the 83 number I showed you this morning would be all the groups that we know of with population above 100 uh, in the world that do not have an active engagement project underway. Uh, and then there would be another 101, I think it is, that have an active project but don't have any fruit yet. And then there would be another layer above that where there would be believers, but it's, it's still kind of, you know, kind of weak and tottery, you know, and so we're hoping for baptisms and church, you know, better church. Um, uh, so, you know... God is at work kind of, you know, there's a process that this goes through and, you know, we're very confident about that. But um, I, I think that the, um, you know, my hope is uh, we think uh, that we see how all but three of those 83 groups get engaged over the course of the next year or so. One of the ones that's left, you, I probably shouldn't say it on, since I'm being simulcast, but you may remember in 2018 there was a story about a young American who was killed on an island in the Indian Ocean. Uh, that people group will be a really tricky people group uh, to get to um, because they kill everybody who goes there. Um, and so, you know, it may take some miraculous action from God, but it all is by God's grace. It all happens by the power of his spirit, uh, you know, Everything we do amounts to five loaves and two fish. You know, the difference, though, between us and others is that we're willing to bring our five loaves and two fish. I had a friend tell me a few months ago, we were talking about that, I came home somehow, and he said, how many boys do you think there were in that crowd that day whose mother had packed them a lunch? Some of you are moms. Would you send your son to something like that without packing some food for him? Of course not, right? So it wasn't that there was only one boy with something to bring. It's that one boy brought what he had. And then Jesus took that and turned it into something amazing. That's why I said this morning, um, you know, I think the most important word in the Great Commission is go. Because when you go, amazing things can happen. Uh, and so, you know, just you got to be on, on, the, on the bias to go. So that's a long road through, you know, how, why I think, you know, 12,000 is a good number. That's anchored to the IMB. Uh, and how we have worked over the course of um, now close to 20 years with FTT to, you know, focus on those unengaged groups and narrow that narrow that down. Now, one one thing to finish with this: there are a lot of people in that unreached category. Remember, I talked about reached at the top, unreached, unengaged at the very bottom. 
what we're trying to do, what I'm focused on, is trying to eliminate that unengaged category, right? None of those. But even then, there will be billions of people and thousands of people groups in the category that is unreached. So, yes, is there a Christian presence there? There is. There would be believers. There would be churches. But it could be very, very small and very fragile. Um, one group I like to sort of cite for this is the Turks. would be a, a 60 million maybe Turks in the world in Turkey. Nobody knows. I, I haven't been able to find a reliable number, but I wouldn't be shocked to hear that the total number of Christians in Turkey is 60,000. So it would be you know, 60,000 out of 60 million. You know, it would be one-tenth of one percent Christian. And so there's a lot of work to do in those places. And I think we keep working until Jesus comes back, right? We, we don't stop until he tells us that we're done. But it will be a big deal um, when we can f- say with confidence that we believe that there are now believers, churches, disciples in every people group on the, on the planet. Does that get what you wanted? Probably longer than you wanted, but it's a good question. And, you know, there is confusion in the data. You know, and by the way, I think both of those data sources, both JP and, and IMB, would be very quick to acknowledge that their data is not perfect. It's very, very, very difficult to gather this. Uh, one of the experiences we've had through the finishing fund is that when you get to where you think the edge is, you find out you're not quite there. You ask the people, are there any more people? And they say, oh, yeah, if you go over that hill, there'll be another there's another group over there. And so in many parts of the world, we've added groups to the list as we've gone and, you know, as based on the best we can learn. So nobody has um, nobody would claim that their data is perfect. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that there's a, a great scientific basis for what I'm about to tell you. I think maybe uh, Paul Eshelman one day read the book Tipping Point and decided that 2% would be a good number to pick. Uh, but the pretty much worldwide, every place I go and ask, you know, pe- people talk about this, they talk about you, know, you move from unreached to reached when you've moved from below 2% Christian to above 2% Christian. Um, now, you know, that's using that tipping point number. It, it, you know, that's uh, Gladwell's number for what it takes to sort of spark a population-wide movement. Um, and he's not thinking, you know, evangelism in that. He's thinking commerce or, he, you know, he's thinking culture. Uh, but it's kind of the number everybody's adopted. So one of the interesting things we see and the people groups we are privileged to work with is very often they go from unengaged to reached immediately. You know, think about a people group with uh, 5,000 people in it. Uh, well, 1% would be 50 people. 2% is 100 people. Uh, and so we'll see three or 400 believers in a people group like that in a year or two. And so technically they've moved from, you know, no gospel to being in the reached category uh, really, you know, almost immediately. So it doesn't always happen that way, but, but often. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good question. And something I should have included this morning. I was driving home and thought, shoot, I should have said that. But um, 
So, you know, if you think about how this has happened in these last days. So you remember this morning I said in 2005, 3,500 unengaged people groups. Today, call it 100 unengaged people groups. Amazing to have that happen in 20 years. Part of that is the very thing we're talking about with Daniel chapter four, or Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. It's technology, right? Um, just the ability to go is so much easier than it was 50 years ago. So we see the fruit of that. Some of it is... Um, you know, is is better research and data quality. Um, it really literally would be true that until about 50 years ago, uh, the global church didn't even understand this idea of people groups. We thought of country of nations as being countries, and so that's a huge um, you know innovation. And then the research efforts that we were just talking about to gather up that data that didn't exist really until you know 20 or 25 years ago. So, I mean, there's some things that you can point to that, you know, kind of, okay, that makes sense. But, you know, Danny, you, you get to a really key part of this, and that is the mobilization of the, the national or the indigenous church as a partner in this work, right? Um, uh, through the Finishing Fund, we have, you know, we, I mentioned 650 people groups We've sponsored Americans to go exactly twice out of 650. So 648 out of 650 were national workers being uh, mobilized to go. Now, there are Americans and Westerners involved in that, often at a supervisory level or at a training function or at a project leadership or project management function, because, to be honest with you, there's things that we do better in the West um, that we're good at. You know, we're, we're kind of good at accounting and project management. It's kind of part of our cultural milieu. But, um, but when it comes to actually going to, the, to that remote place and engaging, we're terrible. Um, it's really hard for us. We're not used to the food. We're not used to the climate. We're not used to, we don't know the language. You know, we don't know the cultural customs. And so uh, n- what we call near culture workers have a huge advantage over Westerners in doing that, that kind of, of engagement. So um, everywhere in the world we see this happening. It's Indian believers going to unengaged Indian people groups. It's Indi- uh, Laotian believers going to unengaged Laotian people groups. It's the, it's the indigenous church, the national church around the world rising up to be a part of this. When that works well, when the West and the South or the West and the East come together, uh, the church, it, it looks a lot like Jesus' prayer in John 17, to be perfectly honest with you. Remember what he prayed in John 17? That we would be one as he and the Father are one. And so you see the body of Christ coming together. You know, what does Paul say? Not, not everybody's an eye, not everybody's an ear. You know, the West brings what they can bring and, and doesn't try to do what they're not as good at. The, uh, the national church around the world brings what it can bring and, you know, is willing to work in partnership. And it's enormously effective when that happens. So, yes, the, the, the mobilization of the church around the world is a, a critical part of seeing this, this last mile uh, race. And it's absolutely wonderful to see it happen, too. You know, it's just so cool to see uh, believers from different parts of the world coming together to make this, make this happen. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I think there's lots of lots of ways Westerners can help, right? So, um, 
one of the questions I was asked, I did a little interview on the, on the stream uh, after my talk this morning. Um, well, you know, so like a lot of the people here are, are medically trained or are being medically trained, how can they help? And I answered that story by telling, I answered that question by telling a story. Um, I was in June in the country of Ethiopia. We went to a very remote part of that country uh, where there's a people group, I can't say the name of the group, um, that uh, would have been for more than a thousand years nothing but Sunni Muslim. Uh, in fact, it's a place where the, uh, that Horn of Africa flavor of Muslim extremism is called Al-Shabaab. This would be a people group that would be meaningful contributors to Al-Shabaab. In fact, I'm sure there were Al-Shabaab people in the crowd when we were there that day. Um, we had sponsored a project to take the gospel, and they had been just banging their head against the wall. They couldn't figure out how to open the door. Um, until they decided what they would do is partner with a, um, a, an indigenous ministry of Ethiopian medical workers, doctors, nurses, and other, other people, and go to a medical clinic in this place. Um, and they did. They went into this place. Now, uh, they were able to bring enormous help to these folks by you know, treating them, diagnosing them, and treating them for disease. Um, but when I tell you it's really important that you go, there were a couple of other really important things that happened that day. One of them was that when the team walked into the village, several people in the village told the team leader, I saw you last night in my dream, opening the door for them to be present in this place. The day they showed up, it rained for the first time in five months in this place. Now, we don't think about that in the U.S., right? That's... You know, it rains all the time here. Um, some places it doesn't. But, um, you know, we're kind of sad it hasn't rained here for about six weeks in Kentucky until today. Um, but in some parts of the world, some places you guys know, you know, the, the coming of the rain is a big deal. And for these folks to show up on the day that it decided to rain the first time, that God decided to make it rain the first time, was a big deal again. And then God... The way they arranged the clinic was that everyone would be prayed for before they saw the doctor. And during that time of prayer, there were several miraculous healings that took place. The doctors were very quick to testify that they hadn't given the sight to this girl who was blind and got her, her sight back. And this place where there were no believers at all, by the end of that week, there were a 100 Jesus followers in that place. When I was there this summer, there's about 150 now, and about 15 of them have been baptized. Um, and so the church is you know, beginning to form in that place. So you can use your medical talent and skill as a way, a tool to help open the door to places that might not otherwise be, be available. You can go and teach people how to do what you know how to do. Um, there's been a ministry at this church for a number of years uh, called Empower, that in two weeks trains missionaries to be bush dentists. You don't have to know a lot to be a bush dentist, just how to pull a tooth. Um, And you know what the difference is between no dentist and a bush dentist when you have a a toothache? It's a big deal, right? It's like, that's good. You know, there may not even be a dentist available to you ever. And so um, just being able to train people, uh, missionaries can use that training to support themselves by just pulling a few teeth every week and getting paid $10 or $5 a tooth, or they can use it as an access strategy to get to a place. So 
there are lots of ways Westerners can have a critical role in seeing this work happen. And I, I, want to, I don't want to discourage you by telling you the wonderful stories about the indigenous church. They need us as partners to get that done, too. So the key is to figure out where God would want you to go and how he wants you to work with the church that's already in that place to see the gospel, to see the Great Commission fulfilled in, in whatever place he, he sends you. Yes? Just want to leverage on your perspective. Um, if you were the general for God's army of missionaries, yeah. what are some major moves that you would want to make that isn't being done? That's a great question. The question was, if I was the general over this, you know, Great Commission Commander-in-Chief, what would, I, what would I do? Well, thankfully, I am not. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, one thing I notice, I don't know if you all see this or not, but, you know, it just often seems frustratingly, you know, like there's not any organization to what God's doing around the world. It all seems like kind of a big muddled mess and even sometimes chaotic. You know, you, what, do, what do Americans want to do immediately? We've got to bring some order to this, you know, and... And sometimes that's useful, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, it, it seems like, you know, the Great Commission often moves in a very organic and apparently chaotic way. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. Uh, one that I am convinced is correct is because God is not going to share his glory with anybody. And so when he can accomplish great things in messy ways, none of us get the credit for that. You know, I do my little piece, you do your little piece, we all do our little piece. Somehow God weaves that together into something amazing, uh, and, and he gets the glory for that. Because we look and we go, oh my goodness, you know, I was only doing this. I didn't even know that was going on over there, right? Um, and so, you know, there's kind of a tension. I'm involved in several ministry efforts to, you know, bring some, some, uh, some order. One thing that's happening for the first time, those maps I showed you this morning, uh, those wouldn't have existed two years ago. Uh, at the village level, knowing where churches are and are not. They exist in some parts of the world. They didn't exist for Nepal. They don't exist for most places. So just getting ministries to come together and say, yes, I have a church there, uh, I don't have a church here, and share what they know, that has been a remarkable breakthrough. Now, all of that is not answering your question. Um, one thing that I'm kind of intrigued about, I'll just since you asked me, uh, is... Um, how the, the missionary world is siloed into, um, the part of what I work in is siloed into church planting ministries. Like I'm, I'm, My job is to go plant churches and translation ministries. Right? So these guys, our job is to plant churches. We don't do translation. These guys, you know, well, we, we might occasionally plant a church, but you know, we're, about, we're about translation. And I would love to see more of the church planting ministries um, embrace the opportunity to, to pioneer translation in places. There are a number of really interesting strategies underway uh, to uh, move fairly quickly to bring Bible story sets into new languages. Not the same thing as translating the Gospel of Luke. That's a much more complicated thing. You can avoid a lot of hard theological concepts by do, telling stories instead of you know, doing translation. So it you know, it's not quite translation, but like our dentist question a minute ago, if you have zero Bible in your language and you could have 60 Bible stories in your language, oh my goodness, that's the difference between night and day, right? It's, a, it's an enormous step forward. And so one of the things we're, we're trying to do a little bit in the finishing fund is kind of nudge a few of the ministries we've supported by connecting them to 
people in that space to say, you know, you probably could lead this. And they're in the perfect place to do it because they're already engaged with that people group in that place. They, you know, they're doing ministry there. It would be very easy for them to layer that on top. So I'd like to say, I, I think that will happen whether I do anything about it or not because um, what often happens in these people groups, especially in the Muslim world, is that somebody will just decide they're going to do it on their own. Uh, especially in the Muslim world, because, you know, the Muslim, uh, Muslims are so much committed to their book. Uh, and they are incredibly uh, linguistically skilled because of that. Now, a lot of Muslims have memorized the Quran in Arabic, and they don't know a word of what they're saying, right? So some of it is just rote. Um, but their, you know, their commitment to the book is so... And so, you know, they, it's not daunting for them. Imagine if you'd memorized the whole Quran. You know, it's not daunting. They, well, I'm just going to start translating this. You know, I'll take the, the Arabic Bible um, and I'll just start translating into my, you know, my people group language. And, you know, I don't think there's any rule that says you can't do that. Uh, you know, nobody, uh, what was the first guy, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, nobody gave him permission. You know, uh, Tyndale, he, he got killed for doing it. He obviously broke the rule, but... Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, the Bible belongs to the church and, the, you know, the body can use it as it sees fit. So it's kind of exciting to see how that gap of the last languages is being covered by it. So that's, that's one thing I'd like to see, you know, just a little more of that. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 You, you could talk about this better than I could, right? But yeah, it's happening. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I I call those um, gateway languages. Um, think think about this: seventy five hundred languages in the world, fifty languages that capture bilingually every one of those seventy five hundred languages. So in other words, you know, fifty languages that there is somebody in the world who is bilingual in that language and one of those other seventy five hundred. It's it's God's so gracious. He gives us that that break, right? Um, and what you're saying is right. There's huge effort underway to disseminate the tools, the teaching, you know, the technique. I mean, you mentioned one thing that's a big deal, which is um, this uh, this copyright problem, right? So uh, the Hindi Bible in India belongs to the Indian Bible Society. 
I'm picking this as an example. What I'm about to tell you may not technically be true, but let's say it's exemplary of what the problem around the world. And the Indian Bible Society makes their, you know, their main source of income is the, is the sale of Bibles in India, uh, in Hindi. Now, the copyright laws say that I can't take that Bible and use it to make what's called a derivative work without permission. And so if I wanted to take that Hindi Bible and go to some remote people group where the people are bilingual in Hindi and their own language and create a Bible in that language from the Hindi Bible using it as a resource, I can't do that without getting permission. And it has been incredibly difficult to get some of those Bible societies to relinquish that. But now, as you say, it's beginning to happen. And Biblica is probably the biggest driver of that because they have now agreed to do that for the NIV around the world, and English is a critically important gateway language. Many, many people are bilingual in English, and you know, increasingly that's the case in the language that they speak. Other, other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, so the... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, if you remember this morning, it's a great question. The question is, what about oral languages? Uh, and if you looked at that list, I don't know off the top of my head, but of the, you know, the 2,500 that are left to do, many of those are oral-only languages. They don't have any written uh, language. And there's two solutions to that problem. You can go and turn it into a written language. Uh, people have done that historically. They create an alphabet. They use typically a nearby language for alphabet, and you create a, uh, a uh, you know, a, a text, a script that then can be used to do a written translation. But what's happening much more now is that um, you you have oral to oral translation taking place, sometimes enhanced with the use of tools. There's a Great ministry called, uh, their tool is called the Proclaimer. It's, um, help me out here, somebody. Uh, faith comes by hearing. And, you know, the Proclaimer is an oral Bible tool. So you can take it into a village and, it, you know, it, they'll read the Bible uh, from it. And so uh, there's a lot of progress being made in oral to oral translation uh, that will really help with that. Um, interestingly, the, the Jesus film is working on uh, the ability. Uh, that anyone can take the Jesus film on their cell phone, uh, take a segment of the film, dub it, and produce it in any language they want. Now, that's a little terrifying because you don't know what, exactly what people might do with it. But you've got to take a risk to you know, win a reward. And the reward will be that in some of these small people groups, they will be able to very quickly begin to have stories from the Jesus film showing up. And that's pure oral Stuff there. It's, well, it's not just oral; it's visual too, because they have the film. Really, inside. so you know, uh, probably many of these things. If you keep asking me questions, I'll keep remembering. But do you get the sort of the sense of how God's bringing this together? How things are happening? You know, that that's the overwhelming sense I get. You know, this momentum building uh, toward the finish. I I tell people all the time that you know we get to just surf this huge Holy Spirit wave that's happening around the world. Um, you know, back in the day, when a missionary would go to a people group, you've read these stories. Some of you may have even experienced this, but, um, you know, you, people would go and give their lives, work in a place, and by the end of that time, they might have a handful of believers, small church. 
um, they were really breaking the rock. I mean, it was hard, hard work. You know, today, I told you some stories this morning. Uh, I could tell you many more, but um, very often we will see the first believer in a people group within a day or two of the missionary showing up in that place. And that is not because we are better technically, our stories are better, you know, we've got a better way to do this. I mean, some of those things may be slightly true. It's because the Holy Spirit is working with power around the world to call the people that God has chosen to be in his kingdom. And I sometimes imagine him, you know, somewhere in the world, the Holy Spirit with his arms crossed, tapping his feet, saying, where are these guys? You know, I mean, like, I've got everything ready to go here. I've got the person of peace teed up. The, you know, the village is ready. You know, the, the circumstances. All I need is somebody to come and tell them the story. And, you know, the gospel will break in. That's the part I... I would like to be catching up with the Holy Spirit. I'd like to be moving as fast as he's moving. We can't do that. We're not able to do it, but it would be cool. Brother. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my concern now, we are trying to reach out to the unreached people or people. Yes. I'm from Africa. Mm-hmm. When I came here, we thought I was thinking it's just the, the door to heaven. Uh. I receiving missionaries in Africa and mm-hmm. the gospel. So we, when I came here, I realized churches are dying. Yes. Churches are dying. Yes. So what is it being done yeah. helping the churches or the gospel continue? Well, you know, um, the, the question is, you know, kind of, the, I often say it's the opposite way, but we'll say it the way you said it. We hear all these amazing things that are happening around the world in these places that have previously been dark. And yet here, where it's been light, it seems to be getting darker. And that, what's going on, right? Uh, and, you know, that's not my area of knowledge or specialty, except kind of in my role as a leader of this particular church, one of the, one of the, one of the elders. And, you know, I think there's a great sorting taking place in the West, in, in the churches, um, and I, I think it is specifically biblically predicted. In fact, it would be another one of those clues in my book uh, that we're living in the last days because I think the Bible is crystal clear that you know the, the church will be infected by apostasy in the last days. And it, we see that in our, in our culture. So you've got this kind of upside-down thing that's happening. You know, the church where it used to be, where it has been, where it probably still is strong, is in decline at the very same time, you know, these new believers, these new, this new church is being erased in the East and the South. And um, it can be discouraging. My advice would be find a church where God's word is preached without embarrassment or equivocation and hunker down with those people. Uh, you know, the, the writer of Hebrews uh, has this very interesting encouragement, exhortation for us, you know, let us not forsake meeting together, as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For a long time, I just thought, well, you know, that's kind of just a rhetorical flourish, but I, I think the Holy Spirit, when he inspired that, was realized that in these last days in which we live, uh, it's going to be harder and harder to do that, to gather with real, with, you know, faithful believers and to be committed to God's truth uh, together. And so, you know, to some extent, I think the answer to your question is we each make that decision ourselves in, the tr- in how we decide to, to do church. You know, our commitment here at Southeast is that we're going to stand on God's word. We're going to 
preach the, the gospel and, you know, we'll see what, what happens. But, um, you know, that, that's what we, what we think is important. There's a really important verse for me. I've been trying to actualize this in my own walk. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And, you know, it's really hard to fix your eyes on something that's unseen. You know, it's a, it's a deliberate paradox, even the instruction to do that. Obviously, he doesn't mean these eyes. He means the eyes of our spirit, the eyes of our heart. And, and he's not talking about, um, you know, something that will ever, you know, be seen with those eyes. He's talking about the coming kingdom of God. He already had a glimpse of that 2,000 years ago when he wrote that. How much more for us? You know, we are living in a place and a time where it's easy to find things to be discouraged about. You know, COVID, culture, politics, you you tell me, plenty of things to be unhappy about. Um, And I think the temptation is, is that we fix our eyes on those things. And what happens when we do that? We're going to get discouraged. We're going to be defeated, confused. You know, I think what he's calling for us there is to look past those things, look through those things to the coming kingdom of God. And he's careful to tell us what is unseen is eternal. That kingdom of God, once it comes, you know, the kingdom of God is the right now but not yet kingdom, right? It's here. We're here. The kingdom of God is in this room right here in in all of us. But when we go out into the culture, it doesn't necessarily look like the kingdom of God. It's the right now kingdom in us. One day it will be the not yet kingdom. That kingdom will come. It will really, Jesus really will rule on this earth. And that will be the eternal kingdom. And that's, I think, what we want to keep our eyes fixed on rather than getting tied up in all that other stuff. Yes? Yeah, the question was, is there anything that would hinder or delay the achievement of of this goal? Yes, there's a lot of things that could do that. COVID didn't help with that. We would be further along except for that. Uh, there's a a large Asian country where work has become very difficult because of lockdowns, because of security. People are paranoid. They won't welcome anybody that they don't know. Uh, Wars hinder this. You know, we've we've all gotten excited, concerned about this war in Ukraine, and that's bad. But, you know, our friends here from the Congo can tell you that's been going on in the Congo as long as you've been there, right? Uh, you know, people, there are these little ethnic and, you know, tribal wars, little regional wars that are taking place. That shuts down the work. Sometimes you have to leave to, you know, because you, you could be killed if you stay. So there's, you know, plenty of things like that. Uh, and, you know, sometimes those things happen. And you're like, God, come on, we were almost there, right? You know, and we just got to remember, we've seen the final scoreboard. And we know that it will be accomplished. Uh, and so we don't have to worry about that. All we have to worry about is what's the next thing we're supposed to do to, to get there. Any uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans in the, in the group? Remember last year in the playoffs when the Buffalo Bills scored with 13 seconds to go and it looked hopeless, right? Uh, imagine if you were watching that game and you'd already seen the final score. The only thing that would be on your mind is, how in the world are they going to win this game, right? And, but they did. And I, I, that's how I think about, um, you know, how I think about what we're doing. You know, it's sometimes, God, how in the world are we going to get this done? And then something will happen, something will open up or, or break through. Um, you know, I, I, I like to tell my Sunday school class, 
that the promises of God are the most real thing you know. They're more real than than the chair you're sitting on right now, than the air you're breathing. Uh, They're more real than anything else you know. There's more chance of your chair dissolving and dumping you on the floor right now than there is of one of God's promises not being kept. If God has promised to do something, you can be absolutely sure that he will do it. Uh, And so, you know, we just have to, we just want to have faith and confidence that what he has shown us that he's going to do, he absolutely and surely will do. And we just fight through the the hardships, the, the setbacks. How am I doing on time? Ten more minutes. A couple, time, a couple more questions. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Oh, sometimes it speeds it up. That's a great, yeah. So the question was, um, does turmoil slow down the work? And, uh, you know, I can tell by the way you ask it, right? Sometimes it speeds it up. Uh, people who are dislocated, um, you know, are often much more receptive to new ideas than they would have been in their place. So, um I sometimes think about um, three ways that God is bringing the Great Commission goal line toward us while we're driving toward it. Okay, So one of those would be uh, immigration. So all of these Syrians and other Africans, uh, Middle Easterners who have come to Europe um, in these very difficult circumstances, there's a lot to be you know, worried about about that culturally, but... Many of those people have come to know Jesus, and many of them would never have had the chance to do that if they'd stayed in their place. So at the same time we're going to the world, God is bringing the world to to us. The second one is education. Uh, some of you are part of that story maybe, um, but you know, God is bringing people from all around the world to the United States to be educated. Uh, and in, again, it, when they're here, they're much more open and much more likely to be reached with the gospel than they would be when they're back home in the comfort of their family and, and normal circumstances. Many great ministries that are working on exactly that opportunity and seeing great fruit from that. And then the third one is, is urbanization. So uh, everywhere in the world, the trend is to go from the village to the city. Uh, and so whatever country you work in, you think about that in your own context. Um, I think about uh, Nigeria, where I've been many times, you know, who knows how many people live in Lagos, Nigeria. I mean, does anybody have a clue? Probably 20 million people. You know, many of those people were in villages two years ago or five years ago. And, and I'm just convinced that um, although it's probably impossible to trace, that there's a much greater chance that they're going to encounter Jesus in the big city than they would in some remote village. There's Christians there. God can orchestrate a meeting, a connection through work or through another friend and make that happen. We have no way to track that. Um, I sometimes uh, you know, wonder, is it possible that all the nations already are engaged with the gospel? They're just not engaged where they you know, originally live. They're engaged in the cities of their countries because I think if you, you know, went to any of these countries, you'd find every people group in that country in the, in the main city. You know, they've come there. So I think of those three things as things that are moving uh, goalposts toward us. During COVID, um, you know, when these governments did these shutdowns uh, around the world, which was just mind-bogglingly stupid. But, um, uh, um, you know, and in many parts of the world, what you eat tonight depends on what you earn today. You know, you go to work, you get your paycheck, your, your money, you go to the market, you buy dinner, and you go home and cook it. And so if you can't work, you know, you don't have a freezer in your basement, you don't have a basement. Um, 
you know, with food in it. You don't have stored up food. You know, you, you, you can't. And so some of these governments did this with just like it's almost like they don't they're out of touch with their own populations. But in India, for example, that created enormous opportunities for ministries that would pivot to help people who were starving, who, you know, didn't have a way to feed themselves. And many people came to Christ as a result of those acts of you know, service and generosity during that time. So your point is exactly right. Sometimes the hard, hard stuff makes it harder. Sometimes the hard stuff opens a door and, and makes, makes amazing things happen. God can work through all of that. You know? um, he knows what he's doing. Sometimes we wonder, but I promise, he know, I promise you he knows what he's doing. One more question, then we'll be done. Yes? Yeah. Okay. If I haven't thought about it, I'll tell you that, but go ahead. Yeah. You know, that may be the first time that Romans 11 has ever been quoted in this church. Uh, it's, you know, those are, uh, those are passages that are pretty tricky. 9, 10, 11. Everybody likes Romans 8, right? Uh, but it doesn't stop there. It goes to 9, 10, and 11, and God says some things in there that, you know, people really argue about or are controversy about. I think what that's talking about uh, is the promise that occurs a little earlier in those chapters where, Paul, or maybe just right after that, where Paul promises that, you know, ultimately all Israel will be saved. Uh, Now, what he means by all Israel will be the remnant of Israel, in my opinion, that is left at the time when Jesus actually returns. As I read the Bible, uh, it describes, you know, a a worldwide invasion of Israel. Uh, I think it even describes to the point that the armies are in the streets of Jerusalem. The battle is almost completely lost and then Jesus appears on the Mount of Olives and eradicates those armies and sets Israel free and you know uh, Zechariah I forget the chapter and verse says you know that you know they will receive him as one you know receives you know someone they have pierced right so the remnant of the Jews will will come to faith and it'd be interesting to think about what the you know being, being like life to the dead would be but i think probably that would be describing them going from 
unbelief to belief in that kind of twinkling of an eye at the return of Christ. But it may have bigger meaning about that. I, I just wouldn't want to speculate about that. I have to think about it some. So, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, though. And good for you studying Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's good. Well, thank you, guys. Um, uh, I don't know what comes next. Is Oh, you got to do your evaluations uh, for this. And then, uh, is it dinner time? It's dinner time. Go get fed. Thank you for being here. God bless you all. Thank you.